Good morning, Highland Community Church. As we dive into God's word, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful to get to spend some time preparing our hearts to worship Christ this Christmas. And this morning, as we look at Colossians 1, it's a passage that is rich with information about beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Father, with our time this morning, I pray that you heighten our view of Christ, that you help us to be prepared to rightly worship you, and that you encourage us and challenge us to live lives according to you, uh, your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we often call it the Christ hymn. I love John 1.29. It's one of those passages that kind of gives me goosebumps. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know the context. John the Baptist who has come to prepare the way of Christ. He is bringing people down to the Jordan River, down by the Dead Sea, Scripture says all of Judea turn out to be baptized by John. If that's only a small fraction, it could be several hundreds of thousands of people who are going down south almost to the Dead Sea where the Jordan used to pour into the Dead Sea. And he suddenly sees Christ. Christ is there with a bunch of sinners who are needing baptism. Christ doesn't need baptism. He's never sinned. But he's going to be baptized as an example to us. And John sees him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is our goal this morning. We want to behold the Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of Christmas. And I've got to ask myself, when I, when I read this word, Lamb of God, this phrase, Lamb of God, what does it refer to? Well, it refers to the fact that Jesus left the splendors of heaven. Imagine that. He has angels at his beck and call. He's in a place of perfection and he sees you and you and me in our state of sin. And he leaves the splendors of heaven for us. He takes on frail humanity. Fully God also becomes fully man, the hypostatic union. He takes on this, our flesh, because he sees you, you, me, in the state of our sin. And he comes down. Who is the Lamb of God? He's the one who goes to the cross. He's the one who allows himself to be nailed to the cross. The sinless one becomes sin for us. Our sin is thrust on Christ. He pays the penalty of sin, which is death. Not for his sin he had none. For our sin, because he saw you. Who is the Lamb of God? He takes on Jewish flesh. He's born of a virgin named Mary, betrothed to a stone carpenter, a tecton named Joseph. Who is the Lamb of God? He's the one we celebrate his birthday 2,000 years later. And yet the Lamb of God is often not allowed in the mall, but Santa is. Sometimes his hymns are not allowed in public discourse, but popular holiday songs are. Who is the Lamb of God? He's the one 
of whose birthday we celebrate and he's often not invited to his own party. Some countries persecute those who celebrate the Lamb of God. Who is the Lamb of God? He had no earthly home and he came here. Who is the Lamb of God? He chose to hang out with society's riffraff. Think about it. Who did he choose as his inner core? Fishermen, respectable trade, but not exactly individuals you would expect to change the world. One of the inner 12 is a traitor to his nation, a Benedict Arnold. Another is a freedom fighter, an insurrectionist. They had to be at each other's throat. And yet Jesus doesn't leave them in the midst of their sin, but he transforms them. He transforms you and me. Who is the Lamb of God? He's the one that rescues prostitutes and sinners, the poor, the downcast, the orphan. He's the one who cares for all individuals. He sees you, me, in the midst of our sin. Who is the Lamb of God? He's the one that has the audacity to declare that every person in this room, every person who has ever been on this globe is separated from God, heading to an eternal crisis in hell, except for a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Who is the Lamb of God? He is the one that we celebrate today. He's the one that Paul wrote about in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Now, this is a Christ hymn. I've already mentioned that. It's one of three places, Philippians 2, 6 to 11, Romans 11, 33 to 36, and here where Paul took an early first century liturgy, a hymn, and he incorporated it into the text. And we are blessed this morning because Andrew is going to sing that hymn. <laughs> uh, you know... You know, I, I really, I don't think that when uh, Paul incorporated this hymn, it was written for my vocal range. I think it was actually written for a bass. So I, I think Sam can instead sing that hymn for us this morning. You know, I'll have to work on writing something this week with the maestro, Jeff Weiss, so that next Sunday, Pastor Jeff could sing a solo for us. I'm just going to read it. <laughs> Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Who is the lamb? The Greek word icon here means he is the exact representation. I love the way we read about it in John 14, 9, that if you have seen the son, you have seen the father. They are two and one simultaneously. And then the spirit, three and one. Jesus is the uncaused cause. He is the creator that created, but he is infinite. He's never had a beginning. He's never had an end. I think this is where 
some false religions and cults get it wrong. They don't understand who the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They don't understand who he is. I think about sincere Jehovah Witnesses. They actually point to this text incorrectly and they say he's the firstborn of all creation. And by that, they logically say that Jesus must have had a beginning because he was the firstborn. But when you look at the text, the Greek text, the word is prototokos. We don't need to guess on what it means. In the Old Testament version, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, prototokos is found 130 times. In the New Testament, another eight. We have 140 times to tell us what this word means. It doesn't mean the first in line. It means preeminent above, the first in rank. Jesus wasn't the first thing that was created. He's never been created. He's the uncaused cause. It just means that he is above everything that he himself has created. In fact, verse 18 makes it clear because it uses the same word prototokos to say he is the firstborn from among the dead. Was Jesus the first to rise from the dead? Numerically, he was not. You look at 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings chapter 4. Here we have Elijah and Elisha, empowered by God, bringing people from the dead. You look at Luke chapter 7. You have uh, the widow. Her son is being raised. Luke 8, Jairus' daughter is being raised. John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. All of them predate Jesus rising from the grave. It doesn't mean first in order. It means first in rank. Who is this Jesus? Who is the Lamb of God? He is the one worthy of worship. He is above all. He is the Christ of Christmas. Worship the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know, as Paul continues to etch out this amazing and awesome picture of the Lamb of God. He hones in on Jesus' unique relationship with the created universe. In verses 16 and 17, Paul gives us three reasons why Jesus is worthy of all worship and honor and praise. So let's look at those verses again and then we can unpack those three reasons he outlines. Look at verse, thir- er, verse 16. It says this, For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. Now, don't miss how incredible these verses are. Remember the context of Paul writing the letter to the church at Colossae. The church had been infiltrated by all sorts of dangerous false teachers who were de-emphasizing the person and work of Christ. They were... They were diminishing what Christ had accomplished on the cross and they were chipping away at his reputation and replacing it with rigid legalism and worship of angels and all sorts of other spiritual counterfeits. And throughout the book of Colossians, Paul is reminding the church why Jesus is secondary to nothing. 
There are no substitutes for the Lamb of God. In these verses, Paul is elevating their Christology, their understanding of Christ, by highlighting three important roles that Jesus plays within the created universe. Jesus is the builder of the universe. He's the apex of the universe, and he's the sustainer of the universe. Mm -hmm. So let's focus in on that first one. Jesus is the builder of the universe. Notice how Paul includes all of creation in these verses. He includes both the visible and physical universe, but also the invisible and spiritual dimension of the universe. And he says both of those were created through Jesus. Scripture teaches us that Jesus was both present and active at the time of creation. To use an analogy, God is the architect and designer of the universe. He identified the universe that he wanted to create out of all of the potential universes. He drew up the blueprints. He architected everything and ensured that all of the pieces would fit together and function properly. However, Jesus was the construction crew who actualized the Father's plans. Jesus is the creative agent in Genesis 1 who builds the universe that his Father had outlined. He is the instrument of God's creative work. So who is the Lamb? Well, first of all, he's the builder of the entire universe. However, Paul continues on in the next verse and shows us he's not just the builder of the universe. Jesus is the apex of the universe. All things were created through him, but all things were also created for Jesus. He's the apex. Let's think about that word for a moment, that word apex. Now, I want you to think about a mountain and not just any mountain. Let's, you know, get our minds a little bit bigger than Rib Mountain. Think instead about Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the highest point on this planet above sea level. Its, uh, its highest point is 29,000 feet above sea level. That highest point on the entire mountain is called the apex. The apex is the desired destination of all mountaineers. Reaching the, the climax, the finale, the apex is the singular goal of trekking up this monstrous mountain. And scripture tells us that Jesus is the apex of creation. All of creation was created in order to point towards Jesus. Jesus is the climax, the finale, the end goal of all of creation. Creation finds its climax and fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And you know, this answers one of the most important existential questions that we could ever face. What is the meaning of life. Well, this passage reminds us that the meaning of life is to leverage the totality of our lives to worship and glorify King Jesus. And if Jesus is the apex of all of creation, how can we not rightly ensure that Jesus is also the apex of our lives? So Paul reminds us that Jesus is the builder of the universe. He's the apex of the universe. But then he also reminds us that Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. Look at the end of verse 17. It says that in Jesus, all things hold together. 
Now, this verse might seem short in length. However, it is jam-packed with application and meaning. Not only did Jesus create the universe eons ago, Jesus has continued to uphold and sustain the universe every moment since then. These verses work together to showcase two complementary characteristics of the Lord and his interaction with creation. The Lord is both transcendent over his creation. However, he's imminent within his creation. And both of those characteristics are absolutely essential for understanding biblically what God's relationship with the universe entails. And to underemphasize either one of those characteristics puts us in a very dangerous place in a false caricature of the God of Scripture. To underemphasize his transcendence, which means that God is completely and categorically outside and different than his creation, leads us to heretical views like process theology or open theism. Both of which say that God somehow needed creation. He was incomplete without it. And God is improving and learning and becoming better because of his creation. And from scripture, we know that's absolutely not true. God in no way needed us. Creation was a gracious gift, not a requirement for him. However, if we underemphasize God's imminence, which means that he is actually near us and involved in the ins and outs of his creation every day, it leads, leaves us with some unsatisfactory form of deism. Deism kind of views God as this impersonal deity who wound everything up and then took his hands off and really doesn't care and lets the universe play out, but he's not active. He's not involved within it. Everything just kind of operates without his involvement and oversight. That leaves us with a God who's detached and indifferent to our everyday lives. But this verse dismantles that line of thinking. Jesus isn't detached or indifferent to his creation in general and to our lives in particular. Jesus isn't an impersonal deity who says, too bad you're on your own. After Jesus' atoning work, he didn't retire to heaven and kick up his feet and relax until his second coming. He is active within his creation. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Meaning that if for one moment, one moment, Jesus stopped sustaining the universe, it would immediately implode. This passage says Jesus is the one who upholds the laws of nature. He's the one who sustains the gravitational forces, the electromagnetic forces, the strong and weak nuclear forces. He's the one who holds together every nucleus of every atom. He's the one that keeps the planets in motion. Jesus is the sustainer of the universe, but more personally, he's also the sustainer of our lives. And the only right response to that powerful truth is to trust Jesus in every area of our lives. I mean, just think about that. If Jesus can uphold by the word of his power, the gravitational forces of the universe, how can I ever doubt that he's able to work all things together for my good and for his glory? I encourage you to take some time this week to reflect on those truths and be in total awe of the Christ of Christmas. Radical trust is the necessary response to beholding the lamb as the builder, the apex, and the sustainer of all of the universe. What a great teaching on the Lamb of God. 
And I don't know about you, but uh, this ordained boy impresses me. Christology, apex, existential, transcendence, imminence, process theology, deism. I am totally out of my league and intimidated. And now I have to listen to the other one who will intimidate me. I, I, need, ahead, a, I need a dictionary also to define those terms. So hopefully you remembered yours. But yeah. when John the Baptist used that short phrase, behold the lamb, it would have triggered a memory in the minds of every good Jewish boy and girl that was listening to him that day because the lamb had some profound spiritual significance when we look at the Old Testament. Because remember with me to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. God's people, the Israelites, had been enslaved in Egypt for some 400 years. And God raises up Moses, a man that will bring the people out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. But Pharaoh did not want to give up his free labor that easily and has a tight grip on the Israelites. So God brings about plagues, a destruction upon the Egyptians in order to entice Pharaoh to let the people go. But after nine plagues, Pharaoh doesn't budge. And God promises a devastation in the 10th plague that's unforeseen in the previous nine. The angel of death who would pass through the land at night would take the life of every firstborn and every family and every livestock. But God in his grace and his kindness toward his people provides a way of escape. And he commands his, his people to take an unblemished, perfect lamb, one year old, the night that the angel of death was to come, sacrifice him and take the blood and paint it on the doorposts of their home, on the doorframe of their entrance, so that when the angel of death would pass through the street, he would see the blood on the doorpost and he would pass by, he would pass over their home. And God in his kindness delivered exactly what he had promised and spares the life of those obedient families and their children. And it works and Pharaoh uh, allows the people to go and God rescues them from the hand of the Egyptians. But every year following the Exodus, then God instituted this festival. They called it the Passover, where they would do the exact same thing. Where the Israelites would take a one-year-old unblemished lamb, they would sacrifice him at dusk around the same time of year as the Exodus. And when the, they would take the blood and paint it on the doorpost of their house, as a, a tangible reminder of God's past faithfulness, but at the same time as a promise looking ahead to the future of when the perfect lamb would come and take away the sin of the world. The night before Jesus died on the cross, he remembered this exact festival, the Passover with his disciples, when he was in the upper room and said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And when John the Baptist cried out, behold, the lamb, he was declaring to everyone around him that Jesus was the one, the perfect spotless lamb who came to take away the sin of the world, to take away his sin, to take away your sin and my sin when he went to the cross. Behold the lamb. And that is exactly how Paul finishes our passage this morning. Let me reread verses 19 and 20. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As the perfect spotless lamb, Jesus reconciled us to himself. He restored us to a right relationship with God. Though we were born God's enemies, he's offered us friendship. Mm -hmm. 
though our record of sin is filled with thousands of offenses against God, he's offered us a clean slate. Though we were destined for eternal separation from God in hell, he's offered us eternal life in heaven. Behold the Lamb. When Jesus died and he cried out to Telestai, it is finished. He took away the sin of the world once and for all time. Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, went to the cross for you and for me. But Jesus wasn't just any ordinary lamb. And Paul clues us in on that in our passage. He uses the word fullness, which comes from the Greek word pleroma. Paul uses it again in chapter 2 in the present tense, which helps us understand that this wasn't just a temporary dwelling, a temporary fullness. No, when Jesus came to earth, he was fully God and fully man, and he still is fully God and fully man. God went to the cross for us. It's a top-tier doctrine in the church because if Jesus were only fully God when he died on the cross, he couldn't have been our substitute. If Jesus was only fully man, then it would not have been possible for him to be perfect. Jesus was and is fully God and fully man, a top-tier doctrine for us today because he went to the cross to bear our sin. Behold the Lamb. And every year when you and I celebrate Christmas, we remember the lamb who was slain for us. The greatest Christmas gift of all time was Jesus himself. Have you received his free gift of salvation? Because this free gift of salvation, it's available to all people, but it only applies to those who respond to this gift of salvation with repentance and faith. Repentance. It's a big Bible word, which simply means to turn, to turn away from our old way of life, to follow Jesus, to confess our sin, to ask for his forgiveness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And faith, believing that when Jesus died, he paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. Believing in Jesus, it's the most important decision any of us could make. If you've never turned away from your sin and trusted in Christ, we implore you, believe in Jesus. Receive the greatest Christmas gift of all time. And for those of us who do have that relationship with Christ, there's only one adequate response. We must worship the Lamb. Because Christmas, it's all about Jesus, which is ironic because it's so easy for us to fill our Christmas season with everything but Christ. And for a time when we use the phrase, peace on earth, the Christmas season can be anything but peaceful. But did you notice how Paul finished our passage this morning? Making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has offered us perfect peace, a peace that transcends our circumstances, a peace, a vertical peace in our relationship with God, knowing our sins are forgiven, knowing that we've been adopted into his family, knowing that our debt has been paid, a peace in our relationship with God. May each one of us find perfect peace this Christmas through the goodness and the hope of the gospel. Behold, worship the Lamb. Well, as we talk about Behold the Lamb, I thought we would end with some practicality, sharing something that either we do or we've observed others do that helps us to focus Christmas on the Christ of Christmas. Betty Ann and I regularly have devotions. Several nights a week before we eat, we read through a passage of Scripture. We've been in the Psalms, but what we routinely do is when we get to December, we stop what we're normally doing and we read 
the birth narratives, and even a few of the death narratives of Christ, the resurrection narratives. And so my goal this Christmas for Betty Ann and me, and personally just for me, is to read nine passages. I want to read Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11, all about the birth of Christ. I also want to read Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the lamb who went to the slaughter, who paid the penalty, behold the lamb. In the New Testament, I want to read Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, and John. If you're following that, that was four Old Testament texts, five New Testament texts, because it's possible. It's possible during the Advent season that we get so enraptured by good things that we forget to prepare our hearts for Christ. And we forget that Christ is central. It's possible, probably not for you, but it's possible to spend more time decorating and undecorating our homes than focusing on the Christ of Christmas. There's so many good things that, that I want to be engaged in, but not to the detriment of the Christ of Christmas. Christmas is about Christ. And then secondarily, I enjoy these other things. Christmas presents and Christmas cookies. Christmas dinner and Christmas cookies. Christmas events and Christmas cookies. Hallmark movies and, and Christmas cookies. I think we're starting to notice a bit of a Christmas cookie theme. <laughs> Body by Christmas cookie. <laughs> Love it. But more than that, I want to follow. I want to focus on. I want to remind myself that Christmas is about the lamb. Worship the lamb. And one of the ways I worship is to read those nine texts. What's a way either you worship or you've seen others worship at Christmas? You know, I, I think that for many, one of the ways to worship at Christmas time is to worship Jesus through generosity and giving. Because when we think about Christmas, we're being reminded of the greatest gift that's ever been given, the gift of the incarnation. I think a worshipful response can be in turn worshiped by giving and being generous towards others, towards kingdom causes, towards the church. You know, I, I know of many families that uh, use this time to really be a blessing to other ministries or outreaches or charities. I, I think of some families that receive a magazine from a mission organization like Gospel for Asia that outlines all sorts of different essential needs like having wells drilled or food or clothing or sponsoring a child's education or some of those other tangible needs. And as they give money to uh, accommodate one of those, that builds a bridge for the gospel to be shared within that community. I think of many of our families here at Highland that participate, uh, participate in Operation Christmas Child by 
packaging a shoebox or through our, our giving tree ministry and families go and select these gifts and then you can talk about being a blessing to other people and sharing the love of Christ at Christmas and instilling that in our families. I know some other individuals who are intentional to send care packages to some of our Highland-supported missionaries to remind them that while they are making the sacrifice of not being with their families on Christmas, that we are thinking and praying of them and so thankful for the work that they're doing for the Lord. I, I think generous giving is one of the ways that we can prepare our hearts to worship Jesus for giving us the greatest gift of all time, the gift of his incarnation. So that's just one of the ways that I've observed and we enjoy worshiping as well. What, what about you, Sam? Well, we have a coworker who I won't name who listens to Christmas music sometimes as early as July. Pastor Isaiah. <laughs> I didn't name him. And that comes with mixed reviews in our office. You know, some people <laughs> love it and get excited when they hear Christmas music. Others of us prefer that Christmas music is only listened to after Thanksgiving. I'm not a Scrooge, but I definitely would find myself, along with Pastor Jeff, in that camp. I know that's a gray area, but I think there's something that all of us can agree on when it comes to Christmas music, which I think is why some people might listen to it in July. It's joyful. It's happy. It puts a smile on our face, and that's a good thing. But this year, maybe we can be intentional with how we listen to Christmas music. Instead of just listening to Jingle Bells and Deck the Halls and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, maybe we can pick some songs that talk about Jesus. Instead of just listening to Christmas music, we can listen to Christmas worship music, combining one of the best holidays of the year, Christmas, with the best style of music, worship. Allowing songs about Christ to point our hearts to the Savior. There's some great worship bands that have put out Christmas worship albums in recent years like Sovereign Grace or We the Kingdom, Matt Redman, Chris Tomlin, songs that focus our heart on Christ that will encourage us to worship, to behold the Lamb this Christmas. May each of us be faithful to allow this Christmas season to be a time of worshiping the Lamb, our Savior. Let's pray together. Well, Father, what... Uh, incredible text, rich in theology and in concepts all about our Savior, the one who came for us, the Lamb who died for us, who's resurrected in power and in glory on the third day, is now seated at your right hand. And may this Christmas season be a time not just of busyness and excitement and presence, a time of worship where we behold the Lamb who was slain for us, who died for us, the one who we can't wait to see in eternity. May we behold the Lamb this Christmas. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.